Welcome to the Wedding Wisdom Podcast. My name is Doug Winters, and I will be your host and trusty guide in attempting to demystify the entire daunting process of planning the perfect wedding. In a casual interview format, I'll be talking to the top industry professionals so you can hear directly from them exactly what it is they actually do. Event coordinators, musicians, florists, dress designers, photographers, and even maitre d's that you'll be trusting to make your wedding an unforgettable experience. And as I remind every couple that I play for, this will inevitably be the most expensive party you'll ever throw. But remember, it's still a party. Let's do the show. One of the things that's always fascinated me is the concept of being so self-assured of your own ability that you're willing to risk your entire lifestyle, armed only with the confidence that you are the very best at what you do. Our guest today is one of those guys. His name is Jim Hines, and he's a trumpet player, and he is great. He's great every single time he sits down and plays the trumpet. He plays for me at weddings, or more specifically, he plays for you at weddings in Best Kept Secret. He plays in a backup porn section for Paul Simon. He's played backup for Sting. He's played backup for James Taylor, Billy Joel. He's played in the pit orchestra of countless Broadway musicals, including right now he's playing lead trumpet for Beautiful, the Carole King musical. Every single time Jim walks into a room, opens up his trumpet case, pops on his mouthpiece, puts in some valve oil, loosens things up, he's going to be perfect. He's gotten so good at golf that I can't even play with him anymore. Here's my friend Jim Hines. Uh, so let's get started. How funny is this, right? This is crazy, Dougie. Yeah. Yeah. So how long have we known each other? It's a long time. I mean, I've been in New York 31, about 31 and a half years. And I met you early on because I started suffering from Bodie uh, and those guys at, uh, at the Playboy, uh, Playboy Club. Right. Right, right, right. right. And that, that's when I first met you. That was a nice little crew we had up there, huh? It was unbelievable. I mean, I, uh, you know, I had just moved here from Rochester, New York, where I'd been living for about nine years. And, uh, man, I came to New York and started working with you guys. And like, man, I went right to the top. Oh, thanks, man. That, that was, that, that really was a great band. I mean, it still is, of course, but that original band was ridiculous. You know, it just occurred to me that I haven't really told the whole story or actually any of the story of how this whole thing started, you know, Best Kept Secret and the Playboy Club and how it morphed into Doug Winter's music. Um, I think I'll do a special podcast on that probably next week. I think we should talk about the whole idea of being a session player or a studio musician and the whole idea of literally sitting in a studio and recording the music to a film soundtrack or a television commercial. Well, yeah, this is this is uh, why basically I and most of us moved to New York was to kind of get into the, the quote-unquote the studio scene. Uh, I had been living in Rochester where I went to school uh, at the Eastman School of Music, and I was playing in the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra up there and working around town commercially and stuff. Uh, so you started out as a classical musician, right? Yeah, yeah, I was a classical musician, although, you know, I've always been kind of a jazz commercial guy. But, you know, I did well on the audition, and I got into the orchestra, so I started playing in the orchestra while I was going to school. Uh-huh, okay. And after I graduated from Eastman, uh, I started playing lead with Paul Anka, but at the same time, keeping my job in the Rochester Philharmonic. So it was a kind of a crazy time where I'd be in Vegas for two weeks, and then I'd come home, uh, and the next morning I'd be playing... Uh, on stage with the orchestra playing Berkner's Fifth Symphony. Oh, that's funny. So it, it was kind of a bizarre time. But anyway, I got tired of that and wanted to move to New York because that's where everything was happening, and I wanted to get into the recording. All right, business. hang on. You're in Rochester, New York. Yeah. Six hours north of here, right? Yeah. It's like starts snowing in November and stops in April. Yeah. 
and uh, you go to college for four years. You, you live up there for six years. Um, where, how does Paul Anka find you? Uh, in other words, how does this, everybody talks about going on the road with. Yeah. I was on the, I was on the road with Chaka Khan. I was on the road with Beyonce. I was, you know, what does that mean? Well, okay. So, so I'm going to school at Eastman uh, and Paul Anka rolls through town. He's got one night in Rochester and one night in Syracuse. So there's a local contractor who's hired to put a band together to play with Paul Anka for these two nights, one in Syracuse, one in Rochester. And so uh, I do that. And uh, in the course of the two days, I, I get to, uh, I sat down with the conductor. Maybe I, maybe we saw each other on the elevator or something like that. And uh, I said, Hey, listen, Frank, uh, his name was Frank Leone. I said, Hey, Frank, listen, I'm graduating from college in about three months. And if you ever need a lead player to go on the road with you, uh, I'm, I'm going to be free and love to do it. So this is you getting your master. So you're like 21, 22, yeah, 23? 22. 20, yeah. oh, 22. 22 okay. years old. And uh, so he goes, okay, uh, you know, give me your number. So I gave him my number. And uh, because uh, back in the day, Paul Anka was actually one of those acts that carried a lead trumpet player and paid pretty good money. All right. So when you say carried a lead trumpet player, describe how this whole thing works. So, so Paul Anka, he goes from town to town to town doing concerts, and he's carrying a rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, guitar, maybe some background singers, and a first trumpet player. All right, so when you say carry, it means literally he's traveling with. He's traveling with them. He's, they paying, fly, them. he's paying them on a, a weekly salary, you fly from city to city, you show up in the city, you rehearse a new band uh, every day, and then you put on a show. And so here's this big show, you know, with like, you know, six horns, rhythm section, blah, blah, blah. But the people in the audience don't know that five of those horn players are local guys and there's one lead trumpet player. Because you oh, have Oh, I see. So so all those backup singers are the same. Maybe oh, yeah. rhythm section's the same. And you're the same. And the lead trumpet player is the same. Yeah. You know, Billy Joel, for example, has horn players. His music has needs horns. There are some, some acts that don't really need horns. Paul Anka happened to have been an act that needed horns. Okay. So so anyway, I talked to the conductor, say, listen, I'm going to be free in about three months. If you ever need a guy, I'm totally into going on the road. He says, okay, great. Takes my phone number. About a month or so after I graduate from school, I actually get a call from this guy. He said, uh, I need to put a band together. We're going, to, uh, we're going on the road. We're going to South Africa. We're going to a bunch of places. I want to put a band together. I want you to play lead trumpet, and I want you to hire me a band. So that's what I did. I put a band together, about 10 horn players, and I played first trumpet. Now, does that make you a contractor, by definition? Officially a contractor, because I'm hiring, I'm hiring the guys. In essence, in essence, a wedding band leader is a contractor. He's hiring all these guys to get this job done. Right. Okay, great. And in my mind, that's the definition of what actually a contractor is. Yeah, sure. And you're responsible for that. I'm totally responsible for those guys. I, your I, reputation hinges on them showing up on time. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. My, so, so I have to make sure that I hire the right guys. Yeah. So, uh, and it's, so, of course, you want to get the best players, but you also want to get the players that are going to work, that work well together, that have good personalities. You, know, you, you have to take a lot of things into consideration. As a matter of fact, uh, this afternoon I, I'm recording a, a theme for HBO Boxing, and so I hired I've hired a bunch of string players and a bunch of horn players, and we're actually going to go in the studio this, this afternoon at two o'clock. So I've hired 
I've hired like eight string players and six horn players to come in and play this thing. But I have to hire not only great players, but guys who are, in my mind, nice guys, easy to work with. You know, right. I don't want to hire a guy who's going to possibly show up drunk, <laughs> who's going to kind of show up, you know, maybe a little unkempt. Uh, explain to people why, that, why that's important. I mean, from my experience in studio work is that there's a lot of producers, yeah. there's a lot of quote unquote suits exactly. sitting there that, that don't want to see, you know, a musician coming in in a, you know, Aerosmith t-shirt. Yeah. We have bombed. I mean, that was the 70s. That's exactly right. I mean, if you if you uh, hire a lawyer, you don't want that lawyer to show up in jeans and a t-shirt. You're kind of expecting a certain thing, you know. Yeah, certain professionalism. And that's right. So there's a certain level of professionalism that it's, it's kind of expected. So I, I want a guy who's going to, A, show up on time, come with a great attitude, who's going to really want to play great, who's not just going to be there saying, oh, man, like violin players, uh, you know, Often are these people who, man, okay, I'm doing a studio session, but I'd rather be playing a Paganini solo on stage at Carnegie Hall. You know, <laughs> that's, you know, that's kind of the attitude that they come to work with. I don't want that guy. Yeah. I want a guy who's going to be very happy to be there, happy to even making the money, happy to be playing good music with some good people. Those are, those are the people that I want. Of course. It's sort of like a background singer. You don't want a background singer who's listening to Beyonce's track saying, oh, that should be me out there. Oh yeah, I could have done that a lot better. No, yeah. you know this. I I uh, I've always approached my career, whether it's as a trumpet player or a contractor, as this is a, a client-based service. You know, we're we're here to do a job, right? And that job is to provide an incredibly high level of music at at this moment, whatever that happens to be. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's a recording session, that that's the moment. If it's a wedding. Well, we're required to deliver a high level of music for this particular wedding. It's very important for that client who hired us that we deliver a really high level of music. Because they're only hearing us one time for four hours. Yeah, right. At that moment, we have to deliver an incredibly high level of music. Here's a great example. Last night, I was doing uh, playing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory on Broadway. Okay. So we're getting ready for the show, and... One of the read players, I, I hear him grumbling and said, man, I can't wait to get this over with so I can go home. And I, and I said to him, I said, well, for these people, they've been waiting six months to see this. They spent a week's salary on these, these tickets for the Oh, family. these people being the, the audience? The audience. So I'm looking at these audience people. There's actually a bunch of kids at this point. It's right before the show. They're looking over the, the theater. They're like, oh, look at all the saxophones, the trumpets. Look at it. They're very excited about it. Oh, that's part, of the, that's part of the show? It's all part of the show, you know. Yeah. So these people have spent like a week's salary on tickets. They, they spent like half a week's salary on dinner and parking their car. And the people in the audience are so excited about this show. You have to deliver an incredibly high level of music at all times. That's the job. That's what being, being a professional musician is. That is really, really interesting. Oh. I think when, when most people think of what a professional musician oh. is, they think... Yeah. You know, waking up late and, you know, just just waking up to be creative. Yeah. Sally, give me an example. So you're going today to do this HBO thing. You've never seen the music. Never. You can play anything in any key as soon as the uh, contractor or the composer puts it in front of you. And that's a given. That's like, that's something we don't even think about. When I see a piece of music, I already know what it's going to sound like. I look at this music, I know exactly what it's going to sound like or what it should sound like. Okay. Can I give you an example? Sure. Tell me the story behind this. 
Memphis tonight. Yeah. That was, um, uh, man, I recorded that a long time ago. Like, yeah, that was Peter Jennings, who's gone now. Yeah. 2002, you recorded? 2005? Oh, that was a long time ago. As a matter of fact, that was me and Chris Bodie, as a matter of fact, on that. Oh, that's funny. Because Bodie and I used to work a lot together in the studio. Sure. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite a theme. That was for uh, the great writer Ed Kalhoff. Legendary in the in the commercial business. Legendary, legendary. Contrasting that to a theme I recorded when Katie Couric took over at CBS News, uh, this composer James Horner wrote a theme, and we and I actually recorded that. James Horner is iconic film composer. Yeah. All right. So here's the question: You didn't write it, so you're you're a session player on it. So you get paid that day. And the session, the minute you pack up your trumpet, you're done. You don't get a residual on that, right? Oh, no, we absolutely get residuals. On okay, that. that's, that's what I want you to explain. Yeah, yeah. So uh, on anything that you hear on the network, uh, you know, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, the major networks. Mm-hmm. So basically every 13 weeks, we get paid again. Hang on one second. I'm going to play something um, for everybody. Okay, here it comes. Uh, yeah, so um, I think back in 2001, um, Bodie, Bodie had been playing with Paul Simon, and uh, then he left to go out with Sting, so Paul needed another trumpet player. So uh, our friend Andy Snitzer was playing with Paul, and uh, he threw my name in the hat and said, yeah, Jim would be a, gr- a great addition to the band. So this all keeps going back to me hiring Andy and Chris for the horn section at the Playboy Club 30 years ago. These two great-looking guys who had just graduated from college. It's funny, I went to go see Chris at the Tarrytown Music Hall a couple of years ago, and he has me stand up and tells the audience this great story about he was a broke musician in New York City for a grand total of one day. Here's what this guy named Doug Winters is holding auditions. 24 hours later, he's got himself a full-time job. Yeah, this is how it works. There's a thread. There's like a thread of continuity. And I tell kids when I do clinics, you got to be nice to everybody because you're going to meet somebody along the way who's going to be influential to you somewhere in your career. So I meet Andy. Andy sits around your gig. Okay, so now we become friends. We work together a lot. Now, fast forward to 2001. Andy's on the road with Paul Simon. And they need a trumpet player. Andy says, Jim Hines would be great. Let's get him. So I come into my first rehearsal, uh, you know, and I'm incredibly prepared for this rehearsal. I got all the albums. I learned all the horn parts and blah, blah, blah. So see, that's something that's, that's another thing people don't know the, the preparation. In other words, if you get, if you get called to play for Paul Simon, Paul Simon has a library of what he's like Mozart, you know, he's one of the most prolific. Yeah. I, I learned all these parts. I learned all the horn parts to, Late in the evening, you can call me Al, the boxer. I came to this rehearsal incredibly prepared. As a matter of fact, wait, time out. Let me just play this one thing for people.
This is this guy that we're talking about, Andy Schnitzer and Jim. And who's the third guy? Who's the third? Who's the bone player? Oh, uh, that's Jay Ashby. Yeah, Jay's a great trombone player and also a great percussionist. Really? Yeah, because there's a lot of percussion on Paul's show, like African percussion. So Jay was actually the perfect guy because he could play trombone. And then move and over. Then yeah. Move over and play percussion. He was he was busy all night long sure okay so now so we're going rolling through rehearsal getting ready to go to go to do this tour and so paul says okay let's try let's play me and julio now by the schoolyard now there are no horns on me and julio now by the schoolyard there's no horn parts is this a standard thing like when you're rehearsing that the lead singer is there oh no paul is a really uh hands-on kind of a guy you know he wants his music performed a certain way and yeah. so he seems to be a perfectionist oh so he's a perfectionist yeah he knows exactly what he uh what he wants to hear. You know that 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover album might actually be the best use of studio musicians ever. I mean, it's Steve Gadd doing this drum solo during... Um, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Right. He's got Valerie Simpson, Phoebe Snow, Patty Austin singing backup. He's got Bob James, Dave Sanborn, Michael Brecker, Richard T. It's insane. So Paul had that reputation from the jump. Oh yeah, yeah. And he, but but Paul always surrounded himself with great players, you know, who were free to, you know, throw their two cents into the hat and see if Paul liked it. And they, then they would kind of morph things around. So anyway, to get back to me and Julio, so Andy Snitzer had been playing this thing on uh, on penny whistle because nobody could whistle in the band. So Andy also knew that I could whistle for some reason. I don't know why he knew that, but he said, dude, why don't you whistle this for Paul, see if he likes it. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So we get to that part, and everybody's expecting Andy to play the penny whistle. All of a sudden, here I am, I start whistling the solo. Into a microphone. Yeah, into a microphone. So, yeah. so Paul turns around, he's checking it out, and so we finish the tune, and then he turns to me, he, and in a very serious voice, he says, can you do that every night? And I said, yeah, I can do that every night. He said, okay, great, you got it. And so that was kind of the beginning of a whistling career for me. That's hysterical. Yeah, then because of that, I actually kind of got a bit of a reputation as a whistler. And then uh, from that point, I actually would get calls to, to whistle on jingles and, and things like that. As a matter of fact, Paul, Paul McCartney came up to me on a uh, backstage at the Beacon Theater. He had heard me whistle me and Julio. And he said, hey, mate, that you whistle really, really great. You're a great whistler. He, he thought I was a great whistler. So if, if Paul McCartney thinks you're a great whistler, then I'll, yeah, I think I'll take that as a compliment. I'll take that as a compliment. Well, I know it's 8 o'clock in the morning, but uh, would you mind giving us a taste? Yeah, sure. That is fantastic. Ah, uh, yeah, it's early, too. I wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> Just as an aside. How did you know that you could do that? And for anybody not listening, try it yourself. What, what you just did was you played every single note. It was if, like you were a pianist. Or a yeah, it's kind of in tune. It's in time. I've been whistling ever since I was a kid. I mean, I would walk down the street and whistle. And as a matter of fact, I still walk down the street. Absent-mindedly, I have no idea what uh, I'm doing. I mean, it's the most simplistic thing in the world. I mean, the Disney, you know, whistle while you work. Yeah. yeah, that's a classic. I mean, so no one thinks of that whistling is actually a talent. No, a lot of people don't think about it. You know, just as a lot of people don't think of who was that trumpet player on ABC World News Tonight. I also recorded the theme to Masterpiece Theater, uh, you know, on PBS. Hang on, let me just uh, play a piece of that.
All right, so that's that's got a warm uh, class, very classical. Sounds like it was done in a church. Uh, how does that sound different from that? This. Yeah, that was uh, that was written by John Williams, actually. Yeah. So yeah, so I I have to put together an orchestra. I think it was about sixty people to to record this thing. Players from the New York Philharmonic and the Metropolitan Opera. All right. So not to be mercenary about this, but explain in terms of contracting. You do you get someone says I just need five horns, or someone says I I need a John Williams orchestra. Do you get paid a different amount for a different amount of people? Yeah, I can I can negotiate a fee. It's not. Uh, you know, listen, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not buying a, a, a villa on the Riviera with it, but there are some union, uh, you know, scale guidelines that we follow, but, you know, an orchestra of 60 players, it might be four times scale. Yeah, that's, that's considerable. It's a fair amount. But then if you also factor in, you know, when the residuals pop up, it's four times or six times the original scale. And then you get paid again if you're playing. Yeah. And you and get paid good. again if you're conducting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's written by Williams. Yeah. He sends it to New York or he comes to New York to conduct it? He, he sent it to New York. Uh, and as a matter of fact, that particular thing I conducted. All right, let's back up for a second. We're talking about the NBC. Sunday Night Football. Yeah. I actually recorded, I actually conducted that. So you conducted it? You played the lead trumpet? I did not actually play that one. That was actually the guy playing first trumpet was Phil Smith, who's the first trumpet player of the New York Philharmonic. Really? Yeah, yeah. So we're talking that we're talking legendary status. These are the literally the best players in the world. Absolutely, yeah. Four guys from the New York Philharmonic, two guys from the Metropolitan Opera, six French horns, I think five trombones, tuba, and forty strings from the Philharmonic and the Met Opera. Now, how do you know where to find them all? I call them. They're all my friends. All right, so you know them the way I know singers and horn players for weddings. Exactly, yeah. Because, you know, I've done a lot of, a lot of we've done a ton of movies in New York. Now, you know, if I need to fill out a section, I have a, I have a concert master who I use all the time, a first violinist. And if I need some extra players, she will recommend oh, okay. players to me. So then I will, I can kind of fill out the section. All right, so now you're answering to the arranger who's answering to John Williams, who's answering to NBC. Yeah, uh, I'm actually kind of answering to the production house. They've hired the arranger or the orchestrator. So I'm actually answering to the the head producer. Okay, so this isn't something that happens every day anymore. This used to be a very common occurrence that you'd rent at a big studio. That's where my training was with Bob James. If a musician was late, you know, time is money. It's costly if a musician's late, yeah. Yeah, so... Well, now we're going back to our original conversation about being responsible and hiring that guy who's going to show up on time and not be drunk and kind of be well-dressed, you know? It's, but it's the on-time thing yeah. that's the kind of a critical component. It's funny. It, t- tell that story about... I know it sounds a little self-serving, but with our band, with Best Kept Secret, as, as you see, I mean, Jim's a trumpet player, Jim, uh, Chris Bodie's... I think he's actually the number one selling jazz artist in the world. I would not be surprised. And Andy Snitzer, who's made a wonderful living for years, and they've all played in our wedding band, in Best Kept Secret. Tell the story about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
Oh, yeah, that was classic. And I swear, this is literally the raison d'etre of this podcast, this story. Yeah, yeah. This kind of sums it all up. It was kind of a funny moment. I'm doing the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert at uh, Madison Square Garden with Paul's band, Paul Simon. And Springsteen is there with his band. I think Art Garfunkel is there with another band. There were, there were a lot of people there. And so we're all sitting uh, downstairs and catering. And, you know, we're all buddies. You know, we're all, you know, we all see each other a lot throughout right. the year. So we just have to be on this, right. this iconic gig together. They're filming it. It's a, a TV show. It's out on the air or whatever. So I'm sitting there with a, a bunch of guys sure. and, oh, by the way, are you doing the, uh, you doing that Rubenstein wedding next week? He said, oh yeah, I'll be there. You know? So, so here we are, we're at literally like the heaviest concert of the year. And in six days, we're all going to be playing at the Rubenstein wedding up at Tappan Hill in Tarrytown. And I'm going to put as much effort into playing the Rubenstein wedding as I am playing with Paul Simon at Madison Square Garden at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I think we all do that because I think, you know, we're all, we all have huge egos and we all have, all have a lot of pride in what we do. So right. we don't want to go to a gig and suck. You know, we want to, and we want to sound great. It happens that we're going to sound great at the Rubenstein wedding. Yeah. And that's, and that's how I approach it. So when <laughs> I, when I come to a wedding, right. for example, I've warmed up in the afternoon. I've, I've played a little bit. I've practiced. I've warmed up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I take that as seriously as I do playing with Paul Simon at Madison Square Garden. It's a sense of having pride in what you do. I mean, I want every single note that comes out of my horn to be the most beautiful thing ever. That's all I care about. That's all I care about. That's a beautiful thing to say. I've always been an incredible overachiever. Yeah. No matter what I do, I want to be like amazing at it. I mean, I practice golf. Yeah, tell me about it. I mean, I hit balls constantly because I'm trying to get better at playing golf. Jim and I used to play golf together when it wasn't such carnage, you know, kind of thing. He was always better than me because he's taller. He's got, a, he's more athletic. He's got a better, you know, swing than yeah. I do. And that was great fun. <laughs> tell, tell him that story you just told me. We used to play together all the time. And Jim, Jim's a session player. So it might be on some random on the seventh hole, just, you know, teeing off. And your phone would ring. And you'd say, Dougie, got to go. I'd finish the round, and I'd take your clubs home with me, and we, you know, the next time we played, I'd bring the clubs with me. Yeah. Oh, that happened. It would happen countless times. I mean, that was a classic time. Um, I was at, at my country club, and I was, it was about 1.30 in the afternoon, and I, it was a beautiful day. And so I hit the tee shot on number one, beautiful shot right in the middle of the fairway. And so I strapped my clubs on my back, and I'm just strolling down to my ball and playing by myself, and my phone rings. I said, hey, uh, Jim, this is uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, can you come in right now? We need a whistler on this Cheerios commercial. We need, we need to, we have a session at four o'clock. Can you make All right, let, let's get it? Let's get a picture. So physically describe where you are to people. Okay, so the country club is, uh, I'm going to say 35 minutes north of the GW Bridge. A beautiful golf course, beautiful day, sun is shining, 80 degrees. I needed a three wood, hit a three wood right in the middle of the fairway. And I'm strolling down, beautiful day. I'm so thrilled to be out there. I'm walking down to my ball and my phone goes off and said, Jim, can you come? We need, we need you to whistle <laughs> on a Cheerios commercial. Because uh, whistling pays a lot more than playing the trumpet. When, oh, really? Let me just say that. Oh, my God, yeah. Because it's such a unique talent? Well, it, it comes under a SAG contract, which is a whole nother, a whole nother conversation. 
it's it's the same as a singer. It's like a session singer. Ah, okay. And for those of you who don't know, singers get paid a lot more than musicians. Absolutely. So, all right. So, what time is it when you hit the ball? I teed off at like ten minutes after one. So now it's thirteen minutes after one by the time I get to my ball. And they say, okay, we got a recording session. Well, at I picked three? up my ball, drove to the city, parked the car, got down to the studio, did it, whistled on the thing, took twenty minutes. Yeah, yeah. Had dinner and went and did my show. So that that was that day. So on any given moment, the day the day shifts. Oh, so you literally walked into the studio and you were out in twenty minutes. Yeah, it took twenty minutes to do. Like they say, this is what you want. This is what we want. We want to hear whistle while you work. You're uh, one or two takes. Yeah, that's all. And you're gone. And you're out in twenty minutes. I'm out. Yeah. So whether it's whether you were there for three hours or twenty minutes, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, if it goes past if it goes past an hour, then I start making overtime. But after an hour, you know, it was done. It was done quick. Right. So studio musicians get paid by the hour. By the hour. Yeah. So if you're there for five minutes or. Or 60, it's the same. But if I'm there for 62 minutes, then it then it goes into the next hour. And this is union regulated. All union regulated. It's all written down. and All written down, yeah. 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 Everybody. But you don't have to negotiate while you're there. It's not embarrassing, like you say. No, no. Oh, I hate to, hate to charge you over, but, you know. Oh, no, it's just implied, you know. For example, how much would that pay? I'm not uh, looking at anybody's pocket. I, I, hate, I would hate to ask about money, but I mean. $16,000. Wow. 20 minutes. That's why that's why that particular gig sticks out in my mind because a whistling thing with all the residuals, I added up all the checks and it was like sixteen thousand dollars. That's over a course of like a year and a half or two years. Literally, how does it work? I mean, I know my son was on all my children. I mean, he's literally still getting residuals from when he was nine years old. Yeah, the, those checks come to the house, the the SAG checks, but the union checks. The if you, as a trumpet player, all those checks go to the union. They go to the second floor. To the recording department at the union. And where is that? On 48th Street in New York, in Manhattan. So you have to go in there? Yeah. You pick up a stack of checks. They, they, they don't auto-deposit into your bank or... I like to go physically and pick up the checks. It's just a thing with me. This is very gratifying. It's gratifying, yeah. I'm so old school, it's crazy. Uh, like, as you know, like on weddings, for example, if we have a wedding on Saturday night and a wedding on Sunday, I'll hand out two checks because I think it's very important that at the end of the job, let's say, let's say our wedding is from nine to one. At two minutes after one, I'm, I'm passing out the checks. Because I think it's important for everyone to feel that they've been appreciated. All right, so today, tell, just tell us about today. It's now 9.15 in the morning. So I've got this HBO thing today. Um, tomorrow, I have a Sesame Street session. Yeah, I'm going to get going in about two minutes. Just take a shower play some long tones on the trumpet, warm up my lips a little bit. Wow, every day, even now, after all these oh, years. Oh, God, I practice two, three hours a day still. That's beautiful. Yeah, and I, I think it's important because, uh, you know, like I said to you, I want to make sure I sound great every time I put the horn to my lips. The reason that happens is because I'm putting time in on the trumpet <clears throat> every single day I practice. Two things that I've known about you because we've known each other for so long is that you always have an electric razor. Yeah. And chapstick. Yeah. I can't play with any hair on my lips. So if it's late, like late at night, you know, before wedding or something, you know, my beard has grown a little bit. Right. I have to shave because I don't like the way it feels. The little hair is on my lip. I don't like the way it feels. So that's your little thing. I mean, yeah. 
And I have chapstick because if, you know if you get chapped lips, you know your mo- your lips have to be moist. Moist is good. That's <laughs> moist is good. I used to date an opera singer that would literally always have a scarf in her car. It was the middle of the summertime. Yeah, sure. Like, if there was a stiff wind, you know, she'd want to protect her throat. Oh yeah, that's her instrument. Yeah, my wife is a singer, and she, you know, it's uh, she constantly takes care of her throat. You know, humidifiers and tea and tea with honey. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, constant. So for me, it's my lips. I'm always taking care of my lips. I always put sunscreen on. I mean, it's 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 a lot that goes into, uh, you know, delivering that trumpet note. Yeah. You know. You know, I guess it's the same for anybody. I guess if, if you're a golfer and you you can't have a blister in the on your finger. Oh yeah. Because you can't grip the club. Oh yeah. If you're, it's with anything. Oh, the hours that golfers put into, uh, yeah, to their swing. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. Or if you're a model, you have to watch your weight. You have to watch your skin. You have to watch a. Oh, there's, there's it's a lifestyle. There's so there's so many things, yeah. But you know the the, the thing that a lot of people don't realize, is, you know, and I also hear this when I do clinics at colleges and things. Uh, you know, kids, I say you have to. You know, have you ever really thought about? You know, you hear something on TV. Did you really ever think about how the music got to the TV? Who's actually sitting down playing that stuff? Right. You know, but nobody ever gives that a thought. Nobody ever gives a thought that I carry chapstick around because my lips need to be moist or, you know, all, all these things. Or do you practice for two hours when you wake yeah. up? Yeah, you know, a Broadway audience doesn't know that, they, they don't know what has gone into uh, the, the work and preparation, the hours and the years of preparation have gone into that particular performance. Every time you go to a show, you want it to sound like the soundtrack, the Broadway cast album. You, know, you can't phone it in. And if you do phone it in, that's incredibly disrespectful to the people who have paid like a lot of money to see the show. You know, so for a guy to show up drunk or, or you know, or whatever, just phoning it in, it's, it's just not right. It's not fair. So the difference between playing for Paul Simon or playing at a wedding is it's actually not that difference in the sense that if we played You Can Call Me Al at a wedding... You're playing the exact same part that you'd be playing for Paul, except that Paul would be playing at Wembley Stadium or, or you know. Yeah, well, yeah, but the, the actually, the, the music is irrelevant, the, but the, the attitude behind it is exactly the same at a wedding or at Madison Square Garden with uh, Paul or Carnegie Hall with Sting. It's all the same thing. Right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where I am or what I'm playing. So it just occurred to me, if anybody wants to see who Jim is, uh, just go to my website at dougwintersmusic.com. The very first tune we play is Uptown Funk. You're all over it. The horns are really featured. Jamesy, thank you so much for everything. My pleasure, Doug. I love you. I will see you uh, next Saturday night. I can't wait. All right. Thanks, buddy. All right, bro. Bye-bye. Bye. That went great. That was really good, man. Yeah. yeah. Very, very good. We'll do this again. All right, thanks. Bye.